What do Selena Gomez, Sarah Hyland, Tina Turner and Steve Jobs have in common? I don't know, Annalise. What do they have in common? They've all had organ transplants. Welcome to Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological, brought to you by the Skin Health Institute in Melbourne, Australia. My name is Dr. Sarah Adamson, and I'm a Research and Education Fellow at the Skin Health Institute. And I'm Dr. Annalise Willems. I'm a GP, Medical Educator, and Research Fellow at the Skin Health Institute. This is a very special episode because it is the final episode that our team will be recording together. So we thought it would be most fitting to cover our topic of expertise, the skin diseases of immunosuppression. Joining us is Associate Professor Alvin Chong, a specialist dermatologist and head of transplant dermatology clinic at the Skin Health Institute in Melbourne, Australia. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Also joining us is Dr. Sarah Brennand. Sarah is a consultant dermatologist in the transplant dermatology clinics at both the Skin Health Institute and Austin Health. Thanks very much for inviting me on. Today we'll be covering which skin conditions are immunosuppressed patients at higher risk of developing? Why do they develop? Can they be prevented? And how are they treated? To start off, Alvin, what do we mean when we use the term immunosuppression? So immunosuppression refers broadly to medications that are used to suppress the body's immune system. So as we know, there are a wide range of diseases which are caused by some form of dysregulation or overactivity of the immune system. And the clinical manifestations depend on which organs affected. For example, if your joints are attacked by autoimmune disease, you can get rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory arthritis. If your gut's affected, you can get inflammatory bowel disease. If your skin's affected, you may get eczema or even psoriasis. And in order to control these diseases, immunosuppressive medications may be used. Can you give us some examples of these immunosuppressant medications? Sure. They can be classified as first-line immunosuppressants, and of these, oral corticosteroids are the most used, or second-line medications, which are used for longer-term immunosuppression. And these can include uh, classes such as purine analogs, and of these you have azathioprine and mercaptopurine, or calcineurin inhibitors like cyclosporin A and tacrolimus, and other medications such as mycophenolate morphotil or methotrexate. And more recently, there have been development of many small molecules, uh, such as JAK inhibitors, and of course, the biologic immunosuppressants, such as TNF-alpha inhibitors, and these have a much narrower spectrum of activity. A lot of immunosuppressants are combined together to increase their immunosuppressive effect. For example, organ transplant patients would often have a combination of a calcineurin inhibitor such as tacrolimus, mycophenolate, and prednisolone. Does duration of immunosuppression have any impact? The longer a patient is immunosuppressed, the higher the risk of complications. For example, the longer transplant recipients are immunosuppressed, the greater the risk of them getting skin cancer. For example, in a study of 1,098 renal transplant recipients in Australia, the cumulative incidence of skin cancer increased from 7% after one year of immunosuppression to 45% after 11 years and 70% after 20 years. Do any immunosuppressants have a particularly bad reputation for causing skin problems? While the level of risk between different immunosuppressive medications has been debated between experts, it is difficult to study the level of risk due to changing regimens in individuals over time. 
The purine inhibitors such as azathioprine and calcineurin inhibitors such as cyclosporin A and tacrolimus are thought to be linked to the highest risk of cutaneous carcinogenesis. Prednisolone and TNF inhibitors are low risk for skin cancer. mTOR inhibitors such as sirolimus and everolimus are actually considered anti-carcinogenic. Alvin, who are the most commonly encountered immunosuppressed patients? There are actually uh, a lot of immunosuppressed patients out there, but not everyone is chronically immunosuppressed. For example, very often patients with diseases like asthma may require short-term hits of prednisolone. Okay, so that's short-term immunosuppression. But we do have patients who are on chronic long-term immunosuppression, and these are patients that require ongoing immunosuppression to control the disease. And of these, the highest degree of immunosuppression occurs in solid organ transplant patients. So those with uh, intrathoracic transplants, like heart and lung transplants, are very heavily immunosuppressed, followed by those with intra-abdominal transplants, like renal transplant recipients and then liver transplant recipients. And generally speaking, the patients with single Organs that are affected, for example, inflammatory bowel disease or rheumatological disease, also require immunosuppression, but not quite to the same degree and intensity. What kinds of skin conditions do we see in chronically immunosuppressed patients? Well, there are three main categories. The first is cutaneous malignancy. We will touch more about that later. And then there are infections of the skin. Common conditions such as fungal skin infections occur even more commonly when you immunosuppress someone. Viral infections are also more common and they tend to be, you know, they can be atypical in presentation and quite difficult to treat. And then there are opportunistic infections with unusual organisms. And you have a third group, which is what we call benign skin conditions, which are often due to the medications themselves. For example, cyclosporin A can cause benign sebaceous hyperplasia and hypertrichosis. Why does chronic long-term immunosuppression cause skin cancer? Well, thanks for that question. It's actually a very, very important question. And the answer comes in two parts. There are two factors that contribute towards skin cancer in immunosuppression. So if you look at uh, one is UV, so ambient UV. If you look at Australia, where there's a very, very high incidence of skin cancer, you have a lot of UV. And then the second thing that's required is a genetically susceptible population. In Australia, you have mainly fair-skinned individuals. Immunosurveillance is something which occurs all the time. Okay? There's an important study where investigators took biopsies from normal sun-exposed eyelid skin um, from people with fair skin. They don't have skin cancers. And then they performed mutational analysis, and they found that this so-called normal skin was awash with mutations, which predisposed to skin cancers. So when you immunosuppress someone, particularly for long periods, you hamper the body's ability to kill off these early cancers. So you hamper immunosurveillance. And that accounts for a high rate of skin cancers, particularly in high-risk populations such as Australian organ transplant recipients. Are there host factors involved? There are a number of host factors that increase the risk for skin cancer in immunosuppressed patients. The first is skin type, with fairer skin being at higher risk. The second is a history of previous sun exposure, for example, patients with outdoor occupations or those who have spent a lot of time playing outdoor sports are at higher risk for developing skin cancer. Thirdly, where the patient lives is important, so immunosuppressed patients in Queensland have a higher risk than Victorian patients in Australia. 
The risk also increases as one gets closer to the equator. Fourthly, a history of prior skin cancers or pre-existing ultraviolet light skin damage from outdoor exposure increases risk. Five, the age that immunosuppression was commenced is a risk factor, with older patients commencing immunosuppression having a higher risk than younger patients. Lastly, while they're not true host factors, we should again point out that in individual patients, the duration and intensity of immunosuppression increases their risk for skin cancer. Yeah, actually, geography and skin type is really important. So there's a Taiwanese study that followed up Taiwanese heart transplant recipients who generally, you know, in Australia, they'll get a lot of skin cancers. But in this Taiwanese cohort, there were very, very few skin cancers, partly because you had an Asiatic population that's less prone to getting skin cancers and probably less habitual sun exposure. I think it's time for our first skin tip. Not all immunosuppressants carry the same cutaneous side effects. The potential skin complications of these medications depend on multiple factors, including the specific drug used, dose, age of commencing the medication, medication combinations, individual risk factors, and comorbidities. So Alvin, which skin cancers are most common in those who are immunosuppressed? Well, we should really look at skin cancers in organ transplant recipients as exemplars of cutaneous carcinogenesis in extreme immunosuppression. So of these, cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, so SCCs, is uh, increased by orders of magnitude. They're about 50 to 100 times more common. And included in these would be anal genital SCCs. Basal cell carcinomas are also increased, but a lot less, maybe tenfold. Melanomas slightly increase, maybe twofold. But you have these rarer tumors like Merkel cell carcinoma increase about 80-fold and Kaposi's sarcoma increase about 100-fold. So the theory is that you have, if you actually have tumors that have a viral etiology or viral association, they become much more frequent in heavily immunosuppressed populations. So as you know, Merkel cell carcinoma is associated with a polymyoma virus and Kaposi's sarcoma with HHV8. So back to SCC, why is its incidence so much higher in this population compared to other skin cancers? Well, it's multifactorial. Ultraviolet radiation from sunlight exposure causes initiation, promotion and progression of skin cancers in both immunosuppressed and non-immunosuppressed people. This is caused by absorption of UV light by cellular DNA leading to DNA damage. Repetitive DNA damage leads to accumulation of DNA mutations. It is thought that these mutations may cause skin cancers by changing genes like RAS and P53. Immunosuppressant medication and the local immunosuppressive effects of ultraviolet light are also thought to lead to an increase in replication of beta-human papillomavirus, or HPV, in the skin. Beta-HPV is thought to have a role in reducing apoptosis of keratinocytes, leading to uncontrolled proliferation of these cells, which results in squamous cell cancer formation. Older patients with fair skin who grew up in Australia at a time when sun protection was not encouraged or the norm often report sustaining multiple sunburns in childhood, and that is a major primary host risk factor. What is the prognosis of SCCs in these patients? That's another good question. In population-based studies of Australian and New Zealand transplant recipients, 
the mortality rate of an SCC in transmit recipient is about 50 times higher. In other words, a transmit recipient is 50 times more likely to die of an SCC than an immunocompetent patient. So not only did they get higher numbers of SCCs, they're also more likely to get nasty disease. So poorly differentiated tumors in high-risk locations like the head and neck, the presence of perineural invasion, larger tumors, and more deeply invasive tumors. I think it's time for another skin tip. Organ transplant recipients have a 50 to 100-fold increased risk of SCC. These can be more aggressive and lead to increased mortality. Now, back to anogenital SCCs. We touched on these earlier. Why are these a problem? They're a problem because they're more frequent and more aggressive, and often patients are unaware of their presence. Studies have shown that organ transplant recipients are commonly unaware benign or malignant anogenital lesions are present. So asking patients about the presence or absence of genital lesions should not be used as a proxy for performing an anogenital examination. I'll also add that Anal genital SCC in situ can sometimes look just like viral warts. These can present as one or more pink, brown or white plaques and sometimes as a growing lump or nodule. They can have a warty or scaly surface, but they can also be smooth or eroded. I have a low threshold for biopsying a wart-like lesion on the anogenital region in immunosuppressed patients for this reason. This is a complex issue. What do we do when we get patients who are immunosuppressed who are developing multiple skin cancers? Do we routinely change or seize a particular medication? Yes, it's actually really, really challenging. There is a reason why a patient is immunosuppressed in the first place, and it's because it's crucial to their health. But if they're getting complications like multiple skin cancers, then we actually will need to discuss with the treating physician or transplant physician. So there are some general principles, okay? So the first of which is use the minimum amount of immunosuppression. So the question we ask is, can dosages be lowered? Another principle is to use the least carcinogenic drug for immunosuppression, if at all possible. So as we pointed out earlier, there is a hierarchy of carcinogenicity. So PRN analogs like azathioprine are particularly bad. Calcium inhibitors, again, you know, there's good evidence they uh, lead to carcinogenesis. But uh, drugs like microfilin and mofetil seem to be safer, or certainly there's less evidence that they are that carcinogenic. And then you have a new class of drugs called the mTOR inhibitors, like sirolimus and everolimus. So these are immunosuppressants that are actually anti-carcinogenic. So potentially, some of these patients can be swapped to, to use these less carcinogenic medications. And of course, biologic medications are also far less carcinogenic than the old-school broad-spectrum immunosuppressants. So again, let me summarize. It's pretty complicated. I'll give you a couple of examples. So if you have a patient with long-standing inflammatory bowel disease on azathioprine for 20 or 30 years, starting to get multiple SCCs, perhaps they can be switched to something else. For example, a biologic treatment like infliximab or vedolizumab. If a renal transplant patient on tacrolimus, mycophelia, and prednisolone starts to get multiple life-threatening squames, then potentially there can be consideration of an mTOR inhibitor such as serolimus used to replace the calcium inhibitor. And these are all questions that need to be answered in a multidisciplinary setting. And Elvin, sorry to clarify, by squame, do you mean squamous cell carcinomas? Yes, squame's the cool way of saying it. Oh, I see. <laughs> squames. Apart from changing drugs, can anything else be done with these patients? Yes. Look, you know, 
Um, we actually did a study that looked at burden of disease in transfer recipients. And what we showed is that when they start getting one skin cancer, they're going to get more and more. Okay. So this is a, a real problem. So one of the things that we recommend is careful surveillance uh, and treatment of precancers, if at all possible. Prevention is paramount. I think even before someone's immunosuppressed, they need to be cautious about sun protection. But once they're immunosuppressed, it's absolutely vital. And then if patients actually start to get multiple uh, SCCs, then there are certain things that dermatologists can do. So we can actually commence patients on acetretin. Acetretin is a type of systemic retinoid. And there is good evidence that long-term acetretin use, particularly in the transplant cohort, reduces uh, SCCs. It's time for another skin tip. Prevention of developing skin cancers is extremely important in the immunosuppressed population. These patients need to be very diligent about sun protection. If they do start to develop many SCCs, a systemic retinoid, acetretin, can be prescribed by a dermatologist. Is our threshold for biopsy any different than in the general population? There is a lower threshold for biopsy in immunosuppressed patients due to the higher risk for skin cancers and the more aggressive nature of the skin cancers they tend to develop. And likewise, do we treat skin cancers or precancerous lesions any different than we would in the general population? For most patients who are immunosuppressed, the treatments are the same as for non-immunosuppressed patients. For example, for an invasive squamous cell carcinoma, the treatment would commonly be surgical excision in both groups. We may be more likely to choose surgical excision for head and neck in situ squamous cell carcinomas due to the risk of transformation to an invasive SCC. We do tend to be more aggressive in treatment of precancerous lesions in this group of patients. This is a strategy used to try and prevent invasive skin cancers. Our favourite option is 5-fluorouracil cream for field treatment and cryotherapy for individual lesions. We are less likely to use imiquimod cream for precancerous lesions and we don't use it for superficial basal cell carcinomas in immunosuppressed patients because it's less efficacious in this group. This is because it relies on recruitment of the patient's own immune system to be effective, so responses are often reduced to treatment. How often should skin checks be performed in this group? I think every patient on chronic immunosuppression needs to have their skin checked regularly, so maybe once a year. But if a patient is starting to get multiple skin cancers, then they'll need to be checked more frequently. In our transplant dermatology clinic, we sometimes see patients who are getting frequent SCCs every three to four months. For more information on skin cancers in the general population, you can listen to Season 2, Episodes 1 on BCCs and Episode 3 on SCCs. Ever wondered what the Skin Health Institute does? At the Skin Health Institute, based in Melbourne, we aim to improve skin health for all our patients, and the research we conduct shapes clinical treatment and practice. We provide over 30,000 patient treatments each year and also deliver exceptional education programs for dermatologists, registrars and healthcare workers, specialist training for visiting international medical graduates, workshops to upskill GPs and medical students, and public education programs aimed at improving skin health in the community. The Institute also conducts clinical trials and research projects that are published and presented internationally. We make substantial contributions to the worldwide clinical care and management of skin diseases, skin cancer and melanoma, and are recognised globally for our medical research. We have multiple clinics for GPs to directly refer patients to. 
GPs can complete our online referral form available on our website at skinhealthinstitute.org.au forward slash patient referrals or email referrals to referrals at skinhealthinstitute.org.au. Let's move on to our second category of skin issues in the immunosuppressed, infections. Alvin, can you tell us a bit about these? Yes. So this is a pretty broad category, and these include common viral infections, for example, viral warts, but they can also get molluscum contagiosum and atypical presentations of herpes simplex virus and varicella zoster virus. The commonest fungal infections would be tinea vesicolor. Patients can also get tinea pedis, tinea onychomycosis, as well as the more weird and wonderful deep fungal infections, which are rare in Australia, but commoner in the tropics. Typical bacterial infections, but at the same time, unusual bacterial infections and opportunistic infections. So it's a really broad array of diseases, uh, broad array of diseases, and it really depends on what's endemic in the area. So in Victoria, not too many unusual skin diseases, but a lot more in tropical countries. We might focus on warts as we seem to see that most commonly and are difficult to treat. Why do they develop? Viral warts are thought to be more common and more resistant to treatment because the immune system is impaired by the immunosuppressant medication. Subclinical infection with the human papillomavirus is thought to be present in nearly everyone from early childhood. With the introduction of immunosuppression, the latent infection re-emerges and presents with clinical viral warts. These can present with classical Veruca vulgaris, plantar warts, plain warts, filiform warts, and mucosal warts affecting the oropharynx and anogenital region. Are these diagnosed clinically or do we need to biopsy them? These are usually diagnosed clinically. We would be more likely to biopsy if the wart had an unusual presentation, was particularly tender, or was in an anogenital location, because as previously mentioned, squamous cell carcinoma in situ can sometimes mimic viral warts in this location. What are some of the different treatment options for warts in this population? And does it differ at all from the general population? Treatment options for viral warts are similar to those for the general population, but uh, the treatment tends to be more intense and more frequent. For example, regular pairing, cryotherapy, salicylic acid-based wart paints or ointments, and pedophilotoxin ointment may be used. Sometimes a combination of strategies may be required for more resistant warts. Again, because the immune system is compromised, we are less likely to use imiquimod as this treatment is likely to have less efficacy in this group. If you'd like to learn more about viral warts in the general population, check out Season 2, Episode 10 of Spot Diagnosis. We might explore fungal, nail and skin infections a bit more. How might these infections present clinically? Fungal infections are very common in immunosuppressed patients. In one study of renal transplant recipients, 63% had fungal infection compared with 30% in controls. Common infections include pityriasis vesicola, tinea pedis, and onychomycosis. Tinea pedis is caused by dermatophytes such as Trichophytum rubrum and Microsporum canis and often presents with maceration and scaling in the web spaces between the toes. More extensive tinea pedis may have evidence of scale and erythema on the soles and the sides of the feet in a moccasin distribution, sometimes with tiny vesicles or pustules. It is also possible to have tinea infection affecting the inguinal regions, the trunk, the scalp, the hands and the face. 
Anechomycosis is also very common, often presenting with thickening and yellowish or white nails, with thick crumbly keratin underneath the nail known as subungual hyperkeratosis. There's another condition, it's called tinea versicolor. What is it and how does it present clinically? Tinea vesicular is a type of yeast infection. It is also known as pityriasis vesicular and presents with tan or pink or pale patches with fine scale, most commonly on the central chest and back, but sometimes extending down the shoulders to the arms and the neck. The colour it presents with often depends on the skin type of the patient. Paler patches often occur in skin of colour, while light brown to tan patches often occur in fair skin types. You can sometimes get several different coloured patches in the same patient. What measures can be taken to prevent these fungal infections from occurring? Good hygiene. So be careful when you uh, visit the showers or swimming pools and gyms. Wear slippers or rubber thongs if you have them. These are very common organisms and sometimes it's almost impossible to prevent yourself getting it. What types of investigations might you complete when you suspect a fungal infection of the skin or the nails? If you suspect tinea vesicola, skin scrapings can be taken for microscopy looking for the characteristic yeasts. If you suspect a dermatophyte infection such as tinea pedis, skin scrapings for fungal microscopy and culture can be taken. In nail dermatophyte infections, nail clippings are taken for fungal microscopy and culture, or sometimes we use a 3mm punch biopsy to gently remove sub the subungual hyperkeratosis in difficult to clip nails. What treatment options are available? And in these patients, are topical treatments as effective as oral? Well, there are actually several types of fungal infections we talked about, and they need to be dealt with differently. So first, let's talk about tinea caused by dermatophyte infections. If you have uh, tinea in the nail, so tinea onychomycosis, you need prolonged oral treatment with an oral antifungal treatment. If you have tinea affecting the nails, then you need prolonged oral antifungal treatment. For example, terbinafine taken orally for three to six months. And I'll just keep in mind that this cohort is also immunosuppressed with other medications. You have to make sure they don't have uh, toxic drug interactions. If you have a patient with just a little bit of tinea corporis on their skin, then you can use a topical imidazole. But if the infection is very extensive, then you're also going to require systemic oral antifungal treatment for a few weeks. It's a bit different from tinea vesicular, which is caused by the skin yeast. I think tinea vesicular uh, can be easily treated with a topical treatment, for example, topical ketoconazole shampoo, one or 2% ketoconazole shampoo, rubbed onto the skin, uh, left on for a few minutes, and then washed off. This can be done regularly, regularly, uh, uh, but they tend to recur. So in the summer months, often we advise our patients to do this once every one to two weeks. For more information, I'm going to refer you to the first ever episode of Spot Diagnosis, which is about tinea. So season one, episode one, it's called The Skin Eaters. Let's shift our focus to bacterial and atypical infections. Are immunosuppressed patients more susceptible to any particular bacterial or atypical infections? And if so, which ones? Well, they are actually susceptible to every type of bacterial infection and more likely to have severe bacterial infections. So, you know, staph, strep, they occur more commonly, they're harder to shake. But they're also more likely to have infections from opportunistic organisms such as atypical mycobacteria. I'm assuming we should have a much lower threshold for treating these infections systemically. Oh, yes, yes. I think you should also have a high index of suspicion. Uh, perform microbacterial investigations uh, such as swabs, if at all suspicious, treat early, 
treat empirically. What are some of the commoner bacterial skin infections that we see? Well, folliculitis is a common problem. It often presents with multiple monomorphic small erythematous follicular-based pustules and papules on the chest and back. This is partly due to medications such as corticosteroids and cyclosporin A, and partly due to increased pterosporum and bacterial colonisation of the skin. Initial management is usually topical with antibacterial washes such as triclosan wash or benzoyl peroxide wash. For more severe cases, we may consider short courses of oral antibiotics such as doxycycline if there are no contraindications. We also see postoperative infection a little more frequently in this patient group, for example, after skin cancer surgery. This would normally be treated with appropriate oral antibiotics with swabs taken as necessary. So in general, these patients need to be followed up closely to ensure that the infection is resolving and not turning into something systemic and potentially deadly. In general practice, the most commonly used immunosuppressant is prednisolone. What are some of the cutaneous problems associated with this? Curiously, prednisolone doesn't seem to be linked with an increased uh, risk of carcinogenesis, which is really fortunate because we actually use it a lot. But there are many skin changes in people who are on long-term prednisolone. For example, they can look cushingoid. So if you look at Selena Gomez, you know, she has her face is now a lot rounder, and that's actually the type of appearance you get when someone's on long-term prednisolone. In terms of skin, you can have cutaneous atrophy, so the skin thins, tears easily, becomes very fragile. And if you also link that with an increased risk of uh, infections, you can, you can have uh, a higher risk of skin infections from trauma. Another complication of being on certain long-term immunosuppressants, for example, cyclosporin A, is they may get increased numbers of seborrheic keratoses, skin tags, and sebaceous hyperplasia. So these can cause cosmetic concerns for patients. So Alvin, any tips on how to treat these? If a patient has like a number of small skin tags, it's very easy to just perform liquid cryotherapy onto them and they should just go. Sebaceous hyperplasia is a little bit more difficult to treat. Generally, we would recommend using fine needle diathermy on a low setting. They don't get rid of them completely, but they shrink them. Uh, I've written a paper on how isotretinoin, which is used in treating cystic acne, can be used in low doses to treat sebaceous hyperplasia. I presume that's just by dermatologists. Just by dermatologists, correct. And then if we're talking about seborrheic keratoses, they can often be really numerous and uh, we treat the ones that are causing most cosmetic concern with liquid nitrogen cryotherapy. But generally, I try to leave these alone because they tend to recur. On that note, we will conclude our episode on skin disease and immunosuppression. Thank you, Alvin and Sarah, for your time and sharing your expertise with us. It was a pleasure, Annalise. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for having us. Thank you for being our fearless leader. You have been the driving force and inspiration for this podcast. We've been so grateful to work with you and we have learned so much along the way. Also, Joe, our co-producer, thank you for your many, many hours of hard work on this podcast. It wouldn't have been possible without you. Well, thank you very much. Now, I've got special thanks as well to both Annalise Willems and Sarah Adamson, because this is their last episode of Spot Diagnosis with us. Annalise, thank you for being our co-host for two years, season three and four. And Sarah, thank you for being our co-host for the last season. Listeners may not actually know how much blood sweat and tears goes in the development of each of these episodes, from content development to scripting to recording and multiple, multiple edits. 
and Annalise had to do this for two years and nearly 20 episodes. So your DNA is all over this podcast. And Sarah, your DNA is over the last po- this podcast for the last 10 episodes. So my sincere thanks to the two of you for your contribution to medical education. I couldn't have asked for better colleagues. You've been enthusiastic and wonderful to work with. You're both finishing up as research and education fellows at Skin Health Institute, and we wish you all the best for the future. While we're on the topic of thank yous, we'd also like to thank the education team at the Skin Health Institute. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Spot Diagnosis. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition that requires attention, we strongly encourage you to see your medical practitioner. For listeners who want more information on this subject, a transcript of this episode, and links to other resources, you can find these on our website at spotdiagnosis.org.au. Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. Rate and review us. Let us know what you think. We would really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions. The Skin Health Institute would like to thank our exclusive institute partner, Melbourne Pathology, for their support of the Spot Diagnosis podcast.